everyone for another riveting podcast from the middle road this is nishant malhotra and today i'll talk with mr ronan abraham who leads id insight india office and and is also the co-founder of the venture we'll have a deep dive con- conversation on the social and development sector with a focus on impact evaluation recent social innovation within this space various data analysis tools and methodologies including machine learning impact bonds will touch a bit about development impact bonds and random control trial among others the objective of the podcast is not only to understand the innovation enabling social change and impact within the development sector but also understand from ronan the nuances of of makings of a successful career and transition within the data driven development ecosystem the conversation will update the audience on the best sustainable development practices driving all actors within the international development sector hello ronald a very warm welcome to the mill road platform for an insightful podcast on the social and development sector thank you so much nishant for having me i really look forward to our conversation id insight is a global advisory data analytics and research organization that uses data and evidence to help leaders maximize their social impact it works on a collaborative principle it its collaborations deploy a large analytical toolkit including machine learning and randomized evaluations to help clients design better policies rigorously test what works and use evidence to effectively at scale now there are multiple set of actors involved within the social and business sector id insight works in all the major sectors significantly health education agriculture governance digital id financial access and sanitation and they have offices in dakar lusaka manila nairobi new delhi and san francisco so pretty spread out both in the developing world and the developed world ronald has several um, you have you have done you have supported aspirational districts program the state of aadhar initiative learning partnerships with governments of bihar and andhra pradesh and education projects which stir akanksha and going to school now bachelor of honors degree from st stephen's college delhi university and a master of public administration in international development from harvard kennedy school now you've done lot of great work you know specifically also in you you were one of the impact evaluators which we'll talk about in educate girls which is the one of the first uh, development impact bond in the world and w- which was completed in india so ronald a very warm welcome and thanks for you know coming and giving us a, a, a deep dive on understanding policy interventions and innovations within the data science thank you thank you once again and thank you for the kind introduction let's start let's start with more of a global question you know you worked extensively in the social sector in india at pratham early on in your career you worked both as a researcher and as a manager of a widely successful education project in the state of punjab in india now you effect, you, you you synergized your work at as a national uh, in, in the national coordination team for annual status of education uh, report for policy analysis and as an implementer of learning excellence program called paro punjab 
which covered 13000 schools and he had a, a you know deep impact about 1.3 million children in the state of punjab it it, it impacted about 1.3 million people uh, children so that's actually a huge number the program was for to designed to increase the knowledge level of students from of children from class 1 to class 5 fifth so th this is the range which the project actually implement was implemented in so when you are talking about uh, how did this experience along with your masters degree in public administration from kennedy school of of government harvard university propel you towards opening up one of world class research organization so could you take us through what were the enablers how did it you know come about with with its experience and the education how did it lead to yeah definitely you know of course at the heart of a lot of this is just a lot of serendipity and it's not the case that you know one thing very clearly led to another and and there was this very uh, planned out mode uh, of action that uh, uh, that you're seeing and so you know when i think through um i always been interested in using my skills in a way that is helpful uh, for um the larger society and that kind of uh prompted my career choices from the very beginning and a big part of my initial career was spent at pratham um both in terms of supporting the annual service of education report and also um after working uh, on that report for 2006 and 7 um working in a more programmatic mode within the state of punjab so working very closely um on more kind of nuts and bolts implementation work as well and i i think i owe almost kind of everything um of my career after that to my experience at pratham it was an extremely foundational experience where i was able to travel across india meet lots of innovating uh, innovators entrepreneurial uh, folks within pratham outside within government as well um and uh, travel to various villages uh, meet people from all walks of society the kind of exposure that i got whether it was kind of in pasighat in arunachal or in ladakh um or in uh, kishanganj in bihar uh, it's just mind blowing and i think that uh, that kind of exposure is really what propelled me um and kind of solidified my interest and inclination to spend my career in uh, in this space uh, more you know, broadly defined um and then specifically i think the the two pieces of work that i did at pratham was very very illuminating for me so my my start at pratham was in uh, the annual service of education report and as, and as as many of your listeners would know um this was the first of its kind learning outcomes survey in india and probably the world where we were able to provide a clear simple view of what was the status of literacy and numeracy um in every single district of the country uh, every year and it it completely transformed the discussion uh, which was so focused on inputs and enable us to focus a lot more on outcomes and so what we were seeing was that in terms of schools and having access to schools india was doing really well um whereas when it came to actually children who were going to those schools whether they were actually learning we were finding 
that um, India was not doing so well, and various states, um, while some were doing better than others, on average, um, there was a lot uh, of improvement that uh, uh, we needed to see. And I think it was the first time that there was a very clear empirical understanding of this broad-based fact um, that we were able to bring about uh, with the annual status of education report. So, you know, my role there was really kind of trying to coordinate the surveys in some of the states and then um, doing trainings and, and developing, supporting the development of the uh, questionnaire, the tool, kind of all the nuts and bolts work. Um, I was part of a team that was doing that. Um, and I was one of the members. Um, that gave me a very strong introduction into the role of data and evidence and the role of research and analysis in changing policy, in setting the agenda, in improving the implementation of programs. I was able to take that uh, and you know take that kind of view and work in the state of Punjab where we were actually launching a learning excellence program closely with the government. And um, I was co-leading that with um, two other uh, colleagues of mine, uh, Vivek and Bharat. And uh, we were, uh, you know, essentially in, in, in Punjab going from a very small scale to a very large scale. So there's just lots of like, uh, implementation and scale-oriented work. It was dramatically different from the work I was doing at Asar, uh, which was a lot more um, research-oriented. Uh, and uh, I, I, I really loved uh, that experience and learned a lot from it. And I have to admit, made a lot of mistakes, I'm sure, uh, during that experience. Um, and it's the combination of the two that I think gave me an appreciation for uh, the work that I do now. Um, when one is on the research side of things, it is easier to assume that implementing programs are straightforward. Um, and it's only when one has strong direct experience in implementing programs does it really dawn upon you about how difficult it is to organize a large group to achieve, an, achieve a result. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. And I think appreciation for that really comes when one you know, is in the midst of all of it. Um, and so today when I'm working at ID Insight, we're really at the intersection of using research and evidence and tailoring that research and evidence to the needs of implementers, practitioners. And so the fact that within a short span of three years of me being in Pratham, I got such a deep experience into both um, have really, really shaped what I do now and have been very, very useful and uh, serendipitous for the work that I do now at ID Insight. Um, it wasn't planned, but it is, it, it seems almost kind of, you know, uh, elegantly wonderful that it, it worked out that way. No, that's beautifully put, you know, elegantly worked out. You talked about, you know, moving everywhere, different pristine places, I would say, you know, working in small towns, beautiful places and doing a lot of development work. Now, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you said you make mistakes, you make a lot of mistakes. And you know, that's the greatest learning experience because that's where you learn. I made so many mistakes in life and I think I keep making and that's really nice in the sense that's a part of parcel of, of work. Yeah. So 
So now that gets me thinking is like, what were the challenges? Of course, there are, you know, I could, like you rightly mentioned, an implementation is by far maybe even much more challenging as compared to the work and research. So what were the challenges when, you know, would you encounter when you came up, uh, you know, you worked with across diverse set of actors within the social sector? That was one. And then when you're coming up as an entrepreneur, that, that itself is a huge challenge. Right, so when you mean challenges while I was at uh, Pratham or at ID Insight or more broadly? More broadly, you know, when, when you're there at Pratham, what were, the, what were the challenges when you're meeting different set of actors within the social sector and then you were the next part and you became an entrepreneur. And then what were those challenges? How do you relate those two challenges together? Right. Were, they, were there any synergies between them which you could say, okay, I could, these are challenges which I think I anticipated, I got a good view and... You already have a failsafe program to overcome that. Sure. So essentially, to create deep impact when working with governments, I mean, firstly, working with governments is a strong opportunity to create deep impact because the the, the scale at which um, governments work it, um, means that even if you're able to improve that work by one percent, five percent, the 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 absolute level of change that one is able to contribute to is immense. And so I think that has always been a deep, deep motivator for me. And of course, for, you know, the converse is also true, which is that, you know, one can't have super deep, huge impact when working with government. It's really about kind of raising the ocean by one millimeter rather than uh, raising the well by two meters. Um, kind of uh, uh, thinking that one needs to have when working with government. But then the main challenge that will always remain when working with government is the fact that collaborations are vital for making impact and collaborations require bringing lots of different stakeholders uh, to one, uh, uh, aligning the goals of lots of different stakeholders. And this isn't something that is um, like unique to any, any kind of program or organization. I think this is just something that one uh, one needs to they are doing really well and um, is kind of the foundation for being able to create good deep impact with uh, working with governments because without this kind of collaborative approach where different stakeholders are coming together on a common platform towards common goals it's going to be difficult to achieve that kind of impact um, so i think that i would say is a bit of a central theme through all our work is is, is fostering those partnerships and partnerships would you would feel like one of the most important ingredients of what you do, right? That that because a lot of things are moving in uh, public-private partnerships nowadays in the development sector. Yes, I think so. I think they are they are vital um, uh, for creating real change. You know, you are doing a lot of uh, groundbreaking work. Now, when you're doing that, of course, theory of change has become embedded within the sustainable sector. When you're designing a, you're doing a, you're designing a program evaluation, you would include this philosophy within your implementation process. Now that's something so much ingrained within the development sector. Would you like to share the pathways to change process with an example uh, from your work? Something where you know you, you could really say, okay, this theory of change is how I use the outcome-based approach when building up, and one of the things any in any of the projects which you you know you directly or indirectly might have encountered. Yeah, and I think just to kind of like theory, building theories of change and using that as a foundation for our work is really central to a lot of the projects that we do when asked about this. 
but to just ensure that everyone's on the same page um essentially what a theory of change is is that it's a it's an organizing framework for every organization for how do they believe they are going from their resources their activities and the work that they are doing to creating real results and then how do those results actually lead to meaningful change in the lives of individuals um or or, or other kinds of outcomes that one is uh, uh, is is desiring and this framework what is usually organized in a in a slightly linear way to keep it fairly straightforward and simple for everyone to understand but of course everyone understands that programs are usually much more complex but it's useful to have a, a model um uh, to just ensure that we're organizing our thinking now what is fascinating is that you know while broadly everyone understands this way of approaching a project it isn't the case that everyone um is actually using the simple tool um when they think about their programs and what we find quite fascinating vishant is that when in some of our projects we actually do workshops on theories of change with our partners it's such an illuminating conversation for the partner organization staff so here is an organization that's working on a project that's designed this uh, project together program together and they um in that workshop when we actually you know kind of try to put this framework in front of them and have them work through what are the resources we are committing what are the inputs that we are to committing what activities are we doing and then they have to articulate what results are we achieving and then they have to articulate why is this why are these results important what um how is it changing people's lives you realize that actually if there are 10 people in the room there are 10 versions of theories of change in their heads and it is the process of putting that on paper or on a whiteboard that actually becomes very very clarifying and so what our job really has been is really to just be a facilitator for that conversation that is mostly happening within the organization and amongst the organization staff um helping kind of like organize the conversation facilitator and what we uh, understood over over the years is that this framework is really a powerful tool to ensure that everyone is working with the same assumptions of the program is working with the same understanding of what the program is trying to achieve and just that fact makes um our future efforts much more aligned now specifically with the theory of change like what can one get so i think like one of the big things that we are able to understand using this framework is which parts of our uh, program design are we sure of and which parts are we less sure of for example it might be the case that we are fairly sure that providing let's say meals midday meals uh, in a school program is useful in increasing attendance of children at least up till the meal is served there's a lot of it. let's assume you know when when one goes through this process there's a lot of evidence within the organization and from research outside the organization that points to that now the next question is okay but then it increases attendance but does it increase the nutritional level of the children does it increase their attentiveness of the children does it increase the learning outcomes of the children now people within the organization will say that these two or three things are what we're trying to achieve 
But what it helps us understand when we put it all very clearly on a whiteboard is that here are certain links in this theory of change that we are sure of. And here are other links that we are less sure of. And I think just understanding where the certainty and uncertainty is really clarifies where more data and evidence will be helpful to understand how the program needs to be bolstered. So this for us has been the kind of most important uh, uh, leverage point with, with this tool. Um, it really organizes everyone's thinking really well in terms of where can data and evidence be an impactful tool for um, the organization that we're working with and brings everyone uh, on the same page. Naturally, there are other tools that also need to be deployed to improve the effectiveness of the organization. Because we are a data and evidence organization, we have we are thinking through more clearly on like, is there a use for the tools we have access to for this organization? And this, this workshop or this theory of change framework is what enables us to get a better understanding of that. Interesting point you made, you know, you talked about a midday meal and how it could be linked to the learning outcomes. Now, this is a very interesting case where maybe, you know, you'll take evidence before the project was implemented and then you'll try to see what exactly, you know, how, how did it impact the learning outcomes. Am I correct here? Uh, that's what you could do one way, make a matrix and look at how the evidence based in terms of in learnings, how the midday meal could have. Exactly. It, depending on if that is the program we're trying to evaluate. I mean, this is a hypothetical example that I gave, but assuming that was the program we're trying to evaluate, um, people within the leaders of the program might suggest that, okay, these means are useful in improving attendance. We have a lot of evidence about that. We believe that these means are also useful in increasing nutrition, attention, and learning, but we're not sure. Um, and uh, I think just having the framework actually enables us to understand very clearly what we are sure of and what we're not sure of. Because without the framework, I think that articulation is not always as clear. But when you put everything out there, it just it's, it just helps organize our thinking. Yeah, it gives you sort of faith base. Yeah, you know that, you know, therefore they would be doing much better, but how much, right? So, so that's a very good point which you made. Now, coming back to Let's go into the topic of pandemic and we'll come back to evidence base because that's the next two questions would be on, you know, we've seen a huge incremental uh, evidence, you know, coming in within the sustainable uh, sector. Uh, during the time of the pandemic, you have, you know, done, you're doing fantastic work. You're working on something known as pandemic response initiative. It's a multifaceted collaborative partnership with the global health group at University of California, San Francisco in evidence action. Now, we will be soon launching a data analysis tool under the Pandemic Response Initiative. Now, how will, you, how will this tool catalyze a more informative response, I could say, to COVID-19? And how, do you think it's going to be freely available in India or globally? How, how do you see that? Could you sort of share a bit insight on, on what you're doing here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, essentially, as COVID-19 hit, one thing that just generally we saw at ID Insight was that our partners who we have uh, deep trustful relationships with um, uh, turn to us for support in various different ways. Um, in the Philippines, the uh, Ministry of Health, Department of Health um, turned to us in terms of getting support on various kinds of sci scientific advisories that they wanted to is issue to the general public, just ensuring that everything that they were issuing was, was backed by clear evidence. 
um, in the uh, in Delhi, the government of Delhi reached out to us to support them on building the data patient management system and the various kinds of analytics that uh, decision support analytics that they need access to all the way up to the chief minister, um, uh, chief minister's level. And, and so on and so forth across um, uh, across the places we work with. And I think this was a good experience and testament to us about the broad model of ID Insight, which is one, using very rigorous data and evidence for informing social uh, policy, but two, tailoring this these data and evidence tools to directly help the decision makers and the practitioners, the doers of our society. And in so doing, um, having this kind of approach, those doers, when they were faced with such an unforeseen crisis, um, uh, you know, they turned to people they trust. And, and we were very, very fortunate um, to be able to help in whatever little way we could uh, to some of our partners uh, uh, who reached out to us. This initiative that you just mentioned, Pandemic Response Initiative, is a part and parcel of that sort of global effort of lots of things that we are doing. Specifically with PRI, um, what we are seeing, what we're trying to do is really support low, lower and middle income countries in helping prioritize how to deploy testing tools, testing kits in a resource constrained environment. So as we already know, Testing is one of the most important levers for trying to limit the spread of this virus. And that being said, um, the availability of testing tools is, is quite constrained, and especially so in, uh, in lower and middle income countries. This availability has dramatically gone up over the last few months, and yet we see that positivity rates, for example, in many countries across the world is still well above 10 or 15 percent um so that uh, while the who recommends that it should be at least five percent or below um and so this points to the fact that there is a scarcity in testing resources and what we are trying to do uh, using this initiative and this tool is actually provide a very clear framework and method um, to help decision makers in these settings prioritize where they should be using their limited tools. Um, and there are a few kind of uh, broad criteria that we use to help understand this. Um, we are thinking we the tool essentially helps us think through is are the tests going to help in limiting the spread of the disease and managing uh, the epidemic? Are the tests going to be resulting in action like will the results actually change the way we we work and are the tests going to reduce uncertainty around COVID-19 either at the individual level or a population level so kind of these kind of three overarching criteria principles is what is determining how to prioritize where to test and so this tool um, is going to be launched pretty soon and will be in the public domain um, and will be available for free of use, of course, including to um, cities and, and district leads uh, across India as well. So, uh, as I understand, based on this tool, you can figure out where the testing is 
required right it's more uh, it's much more prominent or much more required as compared to other places am i am i am i right here in my yeah, thing yeah. well? and, and by where it's not just for geography but even like which subgroups which person um okay. demographic or which subgroups right i mean which you can uh, sort of look at and uh, just uh, you know this is very interesting what you're talking about just from your insights what have you you said some of the times the possibility is in more than 10 or 15 percent of would you like to share if it's if you could uh, what are your insights when you're looking at these subgroups which which subgroup you think is the most vulnerable uh, among is there a sort of a demographic which we have i know elderly people specifically with underlying cases are much more susceptible to uh, would you have any news here so i mean i think essentially this uh, the my understanding of this personally is mostly based on the delhi based work that we've done and it is um uh, what we see i mean firstly i think in terms of its subgroups are more vulnerable i think that the data the data and the research is 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 out there and is not not really something that i would say you know, we are learning from that data and research and are trying to apply it and analyze our policy makers not that our data in of itself is kind of throwing more insights uh, on that relative to what's already out there i would say you know within the delhi context over time what we were seeing was that um in general positivity rates tend to be higher for older people what that means is that uh, perhaps uh, the level of testing amongst that group is lower than younger groups and that isn't entirely surprising in that families will make decisions that someone is uh, uh, if if someone is old they may choose to not uh, take them to the testing center unless they absolutely need to given the risk of um, taking an individual to the testing center and potentially contracting covid-19 at the center itself um or uh, there could be other mobility or cost related reasons as well so there are trends like this that we have seen um it differential um, positivity rates um and of course differential fatality rates um in in the data and we use this to sort of uh, help advise the government as well on on how uh, they can proceed we do see is an unfortunately differential positivity rates across labs and then also um other issues uh with like some labs being better at analyze uh, better at disclosing the address and phone number of the individuals so that the medical authorities can follow up later and other labs not being so thorough with that process um these are the kinds of uh, insights that are more operational and granular in nature that we are able to provide uh, to our partners on an ongoing basis so did any of these results surprise you just to or you know you spoke oh, this is something we really never thought about but or some of them might have been like okay this is something which i think would have happened yeah lots of things surprised us but then you know, over time don't surprise us <laughs> i think perhaps like in the beginning one thing that surprised us was that there was um, a huge percentage of patients who were not being contacted because of um uh, poor uh, contact information available for them and that was very worrying because naturally only if you can contact them can you reach them let them know that they need to be quarant uh, isolating so on and so forth um uh, another thing but that that has come down dramatically over time and i think i'm you know uh, some of the data that we were able to 
uh, shed light on this issue, uh, I hope has also contributed to that. Um, I would say uh, something else that was surprising to us was the, the time it takes to go from, especially in the early stages, to go from go, uh, trying to get a test. It used to take one or two days to get a test. It used to take two to four days to get your results. And then it used to, again, take some time for you to come to know what your results were. Um, and so that duration in the beginning was very, very long because of the backlog. So that was also limiting the effectiveness of the response. So, you know, when today, when I think back to these things and I, you know, having seen um, similar issues prop up pretty much all around the world, um, literally, I think we were seeing that the contactable rates in New York and London were at the same level or worse than what we were seeing in, in, in Delhi. Um, over time, I feel like none of this is as surprising, but I think when we were in the midst, thick of things a few months ago, uh, learning all this kind of on a day-by-day -day basis, I think everything seemed surprising and interesting. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, you know, it's been an eye-opener how during the pandemic, you know, how different uh, data keeps on coming out. So this, as you shape this as a, you know, your personal observation, and that's actually really important because you're at the frontiers of, uh, you know, of the pandemic and you are one of the social, I would say data scientists in a way you know you're, you're analyzing so your views are of, of most important now, we talk about evidence-based approach now if you've seen uh, from 2000 you know we had about 50, less than 50 reports not 2015 we had about uh, 500 reports so and we also have the United Nations, which has got 17 sustainable goals, and it's so important to move towards them by 2030. So please do share, uh, according to your experience, uh, first, how the world, how you've seen, have you seen, since you've been there, you know, about last few decades, you've been the last 15 years in the development sector, uh, is there been a systemic shift uh, towards uh, evidence-based approach within the development sector, not only in India, but globally, and how would you see India is performing in terms of uh, another global standards. Yeah, I mean, I think a very simple way to look at it is supply and demand. So, as you yourself said, the supply has gone up tremendously. There has been a huge surge in uh, research um, uh, in uh, the, the, the global social sector. There has been a huge surge in the availability of data. Um, both in terms of surveys, uh, but also perhaps more importantly in terms of administrative data and other sources of transactional data, um, both also from the private sector and from the public sector, that is now increasingly available. So, for example, um, like one can get access to satellite data much more easily today than even five years ago. Um, and so I think from the supply side, there's just been a tremendous rise in various aspects of the data and evidence movement. Um, and it's not just limited to an exponential rise in like studies and research and, and experiments, um, or even a rise in organizations like ID Insight, but it's also uh, uh, just kind of a, a big rise in just the, the sheer volume of data that's available today than was before. Um, with, of course, the uh, you know, attendant risks around data security and privacy notwithstanding. 
So I would say from a demand point of view, I think we've seen much lesser of a shift in the pace. And I think that should be disconcerting to all of us who are in the suppliers group, so to say. And so what that means is that I think even today, when you think about whether data and evidence is considered an important input into making a decision, what you'll see is that it is it that, that's probably gone up over the years, but it is still only scratching the surface. A lot of the major policy decisions that still get made today do not actually um, have data and evidence as a very strong, clear input in, in making those decisions. Um, there are lots of examples of this. Now, um, uh, just to interrupt here so that, you know, for my audience, when you're talking about uh, data evidence, we're talking about the causality in, in the sense like if X is there and Y, right? We are more on those lines rather than looking at maybe a part of descriptive statistics to just say, okay, how much it has improved. Rather, no, more on the regression part of... Uh, no, when, I, when I say that, I do mean it much more holistically. It would inc include everything from descriptive statistics to qualitative uh, research to um, experimental, uh, careful causal identification as well. Okay. Um, and uh, it would include large surveys, it would include administrative data, it would include small n um, uh, data, everything. I think, uh, uh, especially at ID Insight, I think we really pride ourselves in using the tool for the right question and we're methodologically very agnostic. Um, and so, you know, definitely, um, I do have a more broad-based definition uh, when I think about data and evidence. And I think, so So to come back to the end of the point I was making, which is that, you know, at the supply side, so, uh, sorry, at the demand side, so I think what is happening is that uh, there is a, a community, a measurement community, a data and evidence community. Everyone within that community knows each other, um, supports each other, um, uh, and is in regular discussions on best practices, innovations, and so on and so forth. There are conferences that happen. There's um, lots of different brown bag seminars, other ways of interacting that's happening. This is a very well-established, strong community, and that's broadly also aligning more and more by the day in terms of the language that the community uses on describing different terms, because, of course, common language is, is probably the most important thing to like get a community to work uh, work well and effectively together happening. But then there is the decision maker group, which is the largest part of the social sector. These are the people who are running programs, who are in charge of decisions, either at the very you know small level of a village or all the way up to the level of a whole country, and they perhaps in some cases beyond that. And I think that kind of broader, larger implementing, decision-making practitioner community is um, there is a very small overlap between these two circles where they work together. And I think both those communities exist in, uh, to a large part in silos. And of course, like our work is to bring all these tools to that large community. But of course, we are a small drop in the ocean um, of the decisions that get made that um, we are part of, right? So I think when we look at the trends in the social sector, uh, in the data and evidence, piece of the social sector, it's important to understand that while there's a huge surge in the supply, there hasn't been a similar commensurate surge in the demand. And I think there's a lot of need for the, the evidence community to introspect on what might be explaining 
um, uh, explaining this. Now, you do talk about supply side. So just to maybe for my information also, when you're talking about supply, the actors would be foundation, impact investors, government, even non-profits, right? Am I right in uh, charities? Is, is that would be the supply part when you're talking? So for the data and evidence community, when I say supply side, I mean a slightly more restricted group. So it would be research institutions, uh, advisory firms, academic institutions, uh, data analytics uh, firms, consulting organizations. Those will be the broad set of suppliers of data and evidence in some shape or fashion. And governments, of course, is part of it. Must be the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation um, or the National Statistics Office are, um, uh, you know, the, the institutions within the government that are also part of the quote-unquote supply side here. Uh, foundations, all of them can be part of the supply side, but the nature of the work, what I meant was suppliers of data and evidence. The more on the supply, uh, demand side, right? That's what, or maybe in as a third party, you're right. I mean, I, I've i now connected what you're saying. So they would be rather, you would be the ones who are, would be pushing up the analysis. So those are the actors which you mentioned. All right. Am I correct here? Right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, now you, you have built, uh, ID Insight is doing some fantastic work, uh, some mind-boggling work in machine learning. And you, you know, you're doing a lot of uh, predictive analytical models, which you're using in the development sector. I'm, I'm also very thankful that you shared an excellent article of Stanford Social Innovation Review, where you, in detail, you know, explain how your organization uses machine learning to analyze education patterns among the rural sector in India. Specifically, you talked about Educate Girls. That's that's one of the projects which you know it's focused on. So based on what you're doing, I would be really interested on key insights like, you know, distance to schools from homes in India. Now that becomes a huge part of a significant variable in school attendance, specifically in the rural segment in India when you're talking about. Now that's a huge segment in India. So elaborate on the groundbreaking work which you're doing in this space and the future of machine learning as a tool within the international development sector, because it's more and more become very data centric and you know this paucity of data uh, specifically in uh, developing countries so your views here would be like you know yes yeah. I, I think firstly we shouldn't i mean i don't think uh, the work when we we would characterize the work as groundbreaking in any stretch i think the idea here is that there are data and evidence tools out there we need to be able to understand clearly how to use them to make them practically valuable for the community of implementers, practitioners, uh, decision makers that we support. Um, and it isn't that any one tool, any, you know, we should always avoid the trap of like kind of thinking about any, any sexy in of itself or groundbreaking in of itself. I think like there's been um, a lot of like harm that has been done when one uh, tries to privilege a tool or a method over um, the actual questions that matter. Uh, so uh, just want to kind of say that as an aside, but to then come to your question a little bit more. So I think the clear part here is that uh, uh, what ID is trying to do when we are working uh, using machine learning is a couple of things. I think there's been a lot of, at, at one is at a sector level and then the other is very clearly at the project level. So at the sector level, I think what we are seeing 
generally is that there's a little bit of a fad associated with words like AI, machine learning, big data, mm-hmm. and um, use of that words nowadays. These words are just kind of used as buzzwords by various individuals without necessarily having a very clear understanding on where they'll be useful and where they won't be useful. And I think it is, you know, given that we are in the midst of like using these tools, I think like at the, at that level, at the kind of at the level of the social sector, I think we want to just alert people to the value of these tools, but also the limitations of these tools. And then in addition to the value of the tools and the limitations of the tools, also some broad frameworks on how to think about using these tools and whether they'll be even useful for you in your organization. And so some of the work that we do is is in that domain, um, just kind of ensuring that we're not getting again into another fad of methods and and uh, and instead getting into um, uh, and instead staying very close to the needs um, of the population that we're serving. Now, specifically with machine learning, um, how is it helpful in projects, or in in how is it helpful for practitioners, decision makers? I think the main value of the tool is that it's useful for resource allocation, making decisions on where to allocate um, your scarce resources. Um, and the way it does that is is it predicts, it tries to predict which parts of your target group have a higher need for the services that you are offering. Now to, uh, and to, to use the Educate Girls example, Educate Girls is a super innovative nonprofit that's working across India on trying to bring out of school girls into school and then providing the support to ensure that they're learning well once they've joined these schools. And they... Uh, their initial model or their kind of main model has been to do campaigns at the village and the mohalla level and actually find out who the out-of-school girls are in that place, create a roster of those girls, and then work with the local community to actually place them within the nearby schools that they should be going to, sort of working with parents and communities to actually uh, improve the enrollment rates. And then um, once they're in school to help provide support required to ensure that they're also learning because as we know just going to school in of itself is not going to translate into learning um, and then and better literacy education so on and so forth. Now they are a nonprofit with clearly limited resources and they uh, got a recent grant to scale up their work across India and I think it was about a hundred million dollars that they received and their initial plan was to you know, based on their budget calculations, they expected that they were able, they were going to be able to reach about one million children, one million out of school girls, um, and uh, which is of course extremely extremely cost effective and valuable. But one of their kind of main methods of doing this outreach was to go village to village, door to door. What we were able to do using machine learning was actually help them better understand which villages they should target. Um, uh, more closely to get uh, uh, to have a higher kind of hit rate uh, in terms of accessing um, uh, where there would be more out of school girls. So what our analysis showed was that about 40% of the out of school girls in India um, in the regions that uh, Educate Girls is working in, um, which is across kind of the northern belt of India, mostly 
about 40% of these out of school girls actually reside in 5% of our villages and so if you were able to actually identify better which are these 5% you would have a much higher chance of reaching more out of school girls with the same level of resources and so what we were predicting is that out of the 100 million dollars that they have received of which 1 million they would be able to reach out to 1 million out of school girls if one is supporting them with machine learning they can increase that outreach from 1 million girls to 1.6 million girls so that's a 60% increase in their effectiveness with the same amount of money um and so that is a uh, like a, an example of the power of using this tool now it come, you know another question is okay what is it that we're doing how are we like you know uh, that was just to interrupt one that's a fantastic example of you know which you have taken to highlight the impact you know 60% increase on the same amount of money so then you know and that is actually quantifying impact i would say right mm-hmm. so, yeah. and you have to admit that a lot of work that id insight does or uh, organizations like us do it's not that straightforward to quantify impact in this particular example it is um but again um uh, it's valuable to i mean it's useful to like think about the effectiveness of data and evidence more generally speaking in terms of improving the capacity of organizations and the efficiency of organizations to improve their impact with the same level of resources that's broadly what we're always targeting in general in this particular case one can put more clearer numbers to it um i don't just to sorry you know very right you know uh, i should not be uh, what i was trying to say is that the work which you're doing uh, some of the some the impact is humongous you will not be ever able to put a figure in it right but uh, you know it was really nice that you had a particular figure right so yeah. you are absolutely right i mean it's a intangible thing there is no value to you know giving education to a young student a young young girl who which would change her life so there is no value to that i do agree and uh, but you know thank you so please do go ahead yeah and so i think the 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 last part that i just want to speak to in terms of like okay um it looks like machine learning is useful for resource allocation in resource constrained environments so you get better understanding of which groups or villages or areas to target so i think if people can understand that's kind of the the broad decision that one is enabling through this tool that will be a big win just in of itself um rather than thinking that you know it can kind of be used for various random things that i think it 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 gets ascribed to sometimes then the next question is okay then how is it able to do so and i think broadly um uh, a few things you're going to keep in mind so one is that there's a lot of rich data out there for um your target population if you um have the the right kind of one or two individuals in your organization or you have partnerships with organizations like ours to identify those data sets that will have some correlation to the work that you're trying to do so in the case of educators the uh, they want to identify data sets that is correlated to finding uh which uh, that is correlated to the outcome of out of school girls and so what we were able to use was use publicly available data sets especially the census um and there was a lot of variables within the census that one can imagine is good at trying to predict whether this particular village will have um uh, more or less out of school girls 
So that's one kind of main requirement is kind of this large predictor data set that is available across geographies at a very granular level. The next is that you need to be able to train this data set before you can actually like use it for predictions. So you need a separate um, data set that actually has all the relevant outcome data. May not be for all the villages that you care about, but at least a, a good solid number. And so in again, in the case of Educate Girls, they actually have been doing household surveys since they started. And so they have a lot of data on, you know, door-to-door -door data and village-to-village -village data on um, whether uh, this particular village has out of school girls or not. And so we were able to use their outcomes data to train the, the census data and other data sets that we use and be able to then better predict which villages will have out of school girls, uh, have a larger chance of having out of school girls, even for the villages that they didn't have data for. And I think that combination of having these two data sets with strong analytical support is what is required for us to be able to use machine learning for resource allocation. Note that that's not always, those conditions are not always going to get fulfilled. And which is why like, it's important to not um, overemphasize the, the value of the tool. It's not a, you know, it's a tool that has a great application when uh, the right conditions are met. And so I think the, those, like there are kind of three conditions that need to be met. One is you want to have this predictor data, which is at the unit um, uh, that you want to make a decisions at, and it should be widely available for your whole population that you care about. And so those are typically data sets like the census. Um, and then uh, the second is that you want a more, um, uh, uh, you want a data set that is clearly got the outcome of interest that you care about that you can link to this larger predictor data set. And then if the third condition is that you need um, the right skill sets within your organization or within your partner organization to be able to actually merge these data sets, create the right, uh, uh, develop the right uh, algorithms, refine and iterate and test and improve those with, and, and use that to enable you to get better predictions. And even then, like it's an iterative process because as you get more data, you can improve your algorithms as well. Um, I hope I I know it's a little it's a little jargony and technical, but I hope hope I was able to get that across. Yeah, I, I mean you're very elaborate and very comprehensive. So that, you know it was really a very detailed conversation on this, and I think it's shared of a very good view uh, overview of uh, you know how you're using machine learning, and I think you're very correct. One should not overemphasize it. Uh, it could just work in the right conditions. And a lot of times it, it might not work and you maybe you just uh, follow your faith and you know that could be even more required in certain. So it's like tailor-made to each of uh, these products. But when you talk about, you know, it's very interesting what I've gathered from your conversation is that you could know those 5% of the villages and that was so important. You know, we have today of tools and different kind of tools wherein at least you have a fair bit of understanding of what you're doing and how you could approach a problem so that's that's really interesting now when we talk about educate girls it was the like i talked about the first uh, development impact bond and when you it's it, just to give you a fair a bit of a bit of a statistics to share here you impacted about 12,000 students across 332 schools in 282 villages so that's how the project was done and half of the village you you 
in this particular case, you did randomized control trials, which is half the village, villages, villages were in control group and half in the intervention group. Now I have a small module which I've also made with you know the audience could refer a bit about RCTs and impact valuation. But uh, do share your experience and methodology, in, you know, how you conducted the RCTs and how they differ from other statistical inference methods, including descriptive statistics. I've written a brief on this, but if you could you know, take us through because you're right there as an impact evaluator um, in this project. So it, it comes right from you. That's amazing. And just to sort of before going on that, to give a brief idea, the impact bonds are impact bonds. Uh, they are a bit different from social impact bonds is that the pair is a third party, which basically is more likely a donor. It's a non-government party. And more likely they have been implemented in developing countries. Although if I'm correct, uh, social impact bonds have also been implemented in, in developing countries. So it, it basically depends on who's the pair. In social impact bonds, it's, the, it's a government entity. Or in, in a, a development impact bond, it's a donor, third party donor, uh, third party, more likely a donor or. So am I correct here, Ron? Yeah, that's right. So that's that's the large main difference between those two types of bonds. Yes. So do share about uh, your experience. I thought I'll just make this uh, mm. reference for the audience. And yeah, I I think um, so. Essentially, there are various kinds of data evidence tools that one can use depending on the question that uh, one is trying to answer or the issue that one is trying to support or address. Um, and you know, we uh, had a detailed discussion on machine learning uh, right now. I wouldn't say detailed, but at least a quick uh, overview of the various pieces to keep in mind. And then um, and another important tool that is uh, used a lot in um, the data enablement sector is randomized controlled trials, RCTs. And I think if I am to just, you know, like the way one piece is to think through, okay, how is it different from other tools? Um, and then the other is, okay, what is it? So I think just on kind of how is it different? One is to just ensure that we understand that it is, of course, one amongst many tools. And I think the key difference here is that if one is trying to understand very clearly does X cause why um, uh, RCTs are a valuable tool to use. Um, as we, as many of, uh, many of uh, us have heard this kind of regular phrase, correlation is not causation. Um, and the reason that phrase is repeatedly used is um, to emphasize the fact that just because we see um, uh, two uh, let's say two indicators kind of going in the same direction, we should not assume that one leads to the other. Um, there could be underlying causes that are leading to both, or it could be completely by chance also. And I think therefore what RCTs um, broadly are trying to help us achieve is that given that there are lots of reasons for why um, this kind of uh, 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 YX and Y could be related, we should have a much more specific and clearer understanding on whether it's causal or not, whether it's well identified or not. And I think that is what RCTs are enabling us to do. Um, and for a set of questions, that is really, really valuable. Not for all types of questions, but for a set of questions, that's valuable. Um, and especially the set of questions where the question is of the nature of, I want to try X, um, but X cost you know, some amount of money. So I'll only do it if it 
causally improves y in a particular order of magnitude that i think is valuable and i think so it is when you have a very clear need to understand the link uh, the causal links between interventions that you're trying and outcomes that you're trying to achieve um rcts are valuable um funders ask for it when they are funding large programs um researchers uh, ask for it when they want to be able to have a very clear and i would say um what some would say i uh, like you know undeniable way of um, saying that x is leading to y um and sometimes practitioners ask for it when they're trying out various different things and especially like uh, you know we've heard uh, the phrase i'm sure your listeners have heard the phrase ab testing a fair bit um where practitioners are just trying out various different things and they just need um like better evidence on whether when they try x is is y changing or not and now the underlying principle between in within an rct is is quite straightforward it's actually it's actually like elegantly simple um conducting one has a lot more sophistication and complexity and nuance but at least at a high level understanding it is fairly straightforward so what we're trying to do usually in our cities is to really just understand whether um uh, uh, as i said x is causing y and the way to do that is we will randomly assign x to a subgroup of our let's say study population so if you had let's say um to use an example that we did earlier in uh, that we used earlier in this in this uh, podcast was around midday meals so now let's say there's this very clear question that someone wants to answer does do midday meals increase learning outcomes um of uh, children in uh, let's say standards 1 to 3 in uh, the district of madhubani and bihar right and uh, you know let's say that is your question now what you potentially can do is that it, you know, uh, one way to answer that question is oh okay let me just give midday meals to you know let me just measure uh, learning outcomes today give midday meals over the next week and then let me measure learning outcomes a month from now. give midday meals over let's say next 3 months and then let me just uh, le- measure learning outcomes after that kind of what is called a pre post study and you might find that learning outcomes have increased and one could then assume that okay this means uh, the midday meals led to those learning outcomes to increase but as as we said correlation is not causation so why is it that that why would that be a, uh, a wrong or a potentially harmful inference and the reason is that there are lots of factors affecting learning outcomes um that uh, have nothing to do with midday meals i think in, uh, no just trying to no i have been i think in statistics you will say omitted variable bias am i correct that, that's right yeah that's exactly right and so just the fact that over time um the schools are functioning so children are learning in the schools anyway uh, you might be finding some learning improvements happening there may be other interventions that are going on in the district of madhubani that might be helping improve learning um there may be various uh, uh, external players who are working on improving uh, learning that might also be leading to that and um, there are just simply various reasons that could uh, be impacting learning so just because we see a change between pre and post we don't necessarily need to uh, we cannot as- assume that the midday meals are causing that change 
and so because this this is kind of the nature of the beast um lots of outcomes will have uh, lots of uh, uh, because outcomes can be determined by lots of other um, reasons what we're trying to do is have a very precise careful identification strategy that enables us to isolate what is the clear impact of a particular intervention on the um, desired outcome so in this case that particular intervention in our hypothetical example is mid-news and the desired outcome is learning so what we would do in a typical rct is randomly assign the midday meals across two groups uh, of children that have been where uh, one group will get the midday meals and the other group will not now these two groups are distributed across the district of Bihar, uh, madhubani and statistically there should be no difference between these two groups so what that means is that children in the first group will be going to really good schools but then some of the children in the second group will also be going to really good schools some of the children in the first group may come from very underprivileged underserved communities but then children in the second group will also be in uh, uh, there'll be a similar proportion of children in the second group as well that will be in underserved communities and how do we achieve that kind of similarity is because we are randomly assigning children um, to those two groups we are not using any rules saying that okay everyone from northern madhubani will go to group a and everyone from southern madhubani will go to group b if you use rules like that then you might have systematic differences between the two depending on whether northern or southern madhubani is um you know let's say a richer part of the district and so on and so forth now once that so the randomization is what enables these two groups to be very uh, similar to each other however the midday meals now will only be provided to one set of group uh, one one group um and this uh is what then if after this when we compare the the two groups let's say after 3 months of providing midday meals and we then uh, three months or six months or one year whatever is the reasonable time frame for us to see that change between midday uh, meals and learning outcomes um then we compare the two groups and if after we see that there is a statistically statistically significant difference in learning outcomes between the two groups we are then much more confidently able to say that the midday meals have uh, likely caused this difference because the only thing that was different between the two groups was the fact that um, one group had the program and the other group didn't otherwise um there's no other systematic difference between the two so that's what we're trying to achieve using an rct um again as we noted in the machine learning um, example lots of conditions need to be met before we're able to be fairly sure about the causal link between midday meals and learning outcomes um and uh, it is not the case that uh, it is straightforward to meet those conditions like if you are the government of bihar or the district magistrate of madhubani she might argue the dm might argue there is no way that it is politically feasible for me to actually only give midday meals to half of my district's children and not the other half um then there are ethical risks in terms of why is it that if midday meals we know is useful for improving attendance and nourishment why would we deny it to half of the children um there are uh, inference like there is policy uh, uh uh inference risk which is that okay let's say the study revealed that midday meals does actually improve learning outcomes you know 
is it applicable to all of Bihar? When the program gets scaled, will the same features get scaled in a way that the impact will also get scaled or will the impact dwindle? Or will it like be zero in a way that like it's not worth it? So can we really infer from this like study that happened in one district, anything that is much more policy relevant for the full state of Bihar or full North India? Like there's so there's a lot of kind of risks along the chain um, that we have to be careful about. And so we should only use this tool, believe that those risks have been adequately addressed. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and that's when it makes sense to, to deploy that tool. Um, uh, we see RCTs being largely deployed by academics. And a lot of times they deploy the, the tool to uncover theoretical, um, to uncover very clear relationships um, that might contribute to a broader knowledge base on um, that might uh, that we can use for like policy making in general. Um, so, for example, RCTs might be useful in uncovering links between certain kinds of incentive programs and how the take up of that program changes. And those links might be more universal than just the area that was studied. But again, like one needs to carefully think through those. Um, aspects of policy influence, aspects of um, ethical risk, um, aspects of logistical, political, administrative constraints before recommending this tool um, in um, uh, uh, to uh, to the partners that we work with. Yeah, true. I, Ronald, I, I do agree. I mean, I know it's a very extensive tool. It takes usually a lot of time. Yeah, for example, uh, when you're talking midday meals, I mean, it's just to give for nourishment. You know, a lot of times you need not just even look at uh, or try to relate with some of the evidence because everybody knows nourishment is so important, specifically for people who are less privileged. So that itself is a huge, uh, you know, boon for the for for the school children. And um, but you know, this is being rapidly at least being deployed, and it's good to get to know from you firsthand. You know how this works out and what are you view. So th that's a that's a very good uh, you know points. Some of the points which have made are very critical to understand what is happening in the sustainable sector, what is happening in the development sector. Now coming back to a global question, and you've been very descriptive, and I really appreciate you know taking time and explaining specifically from machine learning to RCTs. You have been very descriptive. You have been very detailed, so that you know the audience can come to know. When we are talking about these terms, what do they actually mean and how they are working? So that was really important. And thanks for, you know, giving a lot of time on those aspects. Now let's come back to a global question. We had a very detailed chat about your work. Now you're like a role model. You went to Kennedy School so and you're now successfully launched. I would say ID Insight is one of the best companies in India, at least using data analysis for consulting. This is my view. This is what from my research, which I gather. And I'm sure you you are being very modest, and you'll also agree uh, in to that aspect. Now, what I really need to know: How did your education and your, we? I came to know about from your experience. You know, help you in the short and long run. What are the enablers? For example, you could talk about the network which was there at Harvard School. You know, at, at the Harvard University. So you, you could talk to people. Uh, you know, what sort of advice you would like to give? Uh, any strategic guidance? Also, for people who are coming in, who want to come in, one, there are two sorts of actors whom I feel would come into the development sector. One are young people who are uh, 
doing the undergrad and postgrad education. One is that. Second, are people with extensive experience, maybe in other sectors, but really want to come in into development sector. That was me at one point of time before I went to Michigan uh, for doing my master's in public administration. I wanted to you know move into the development sector so what would you think of so this question is in two parts one is of course that you would talk about how did the harvard network help you you know both in the short and long term what are the enablers and secondly advice for these two set of actors which you would like to share right so i think you know um the way to think about graduate school I think the networks aspect, and maybe you know, I'm speaking. I mean, I'm potentially blindsided by my biases here. Yeah, please do go ahead, bro. You would like yeah. to know your views. That's very important. Everybody has my experience is different. Your experience is different, and so this is a view of clarity. You know, a lot of people have their own biases. A lot of people also a lot of times presume things, and this is where you could you know come and give your experience. Yeah, right. Of course, and I think in this case, it's just kind of my experience. It's just one data point, really. Um, I, I think so. You know, uh, like the networks, networks aspect is, I think, of limited use. Um, and I, I'll, uh, I, I'll try to get into why. Um, so the, um, you know, like why does one go to grad school? I think like, or you know, why should one go? I think it is at a, I would say, kind of there are three broad reasons. To get uh, uh, to upskill oneself, to learn new skills that one thinks is necessary to do uh, their job more effectively or that they enjoy doing. The second is um, to get a lot more exposure um, than one would get from the job that they're coming from. Typically, a lot of people go to policy schools in the US after having worked. Um, for at least two, but likely anywhere between three to six to seven years um, on average. And I think like, so grad school is a great opportunity to just get a lot more exposure than the job that you've come from. And the rationale here is that when you work on in a particular organization, in a particular sector, in a particular issue area, in a particular type of work, you get a very strong, deeper understanding of that sector. But then you sometimes can miss the forest um, for the trees. And so grad school just gives you a much broader sweep of exposure. You hear from politicians, you hear from um, practitioners, you hear from activists, you hear from various kinds of like different actors, government personnel, like you, just various kinds of different actors all come at one place and they all talk about similar topics, but from very different viewpoints. And I think that exposure is, is just mind-blowing. So skills, exposure are kind of two reasons. And I think the third reason I would say is like nourishment. And what I mean by that is that it's a great time to just like re-energize yourself and uh, get, uh, 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 enable you to kind of like press the restart button um, for your life, your career. And you've got a lot of experiences till then. And it's still fairly, typically for most people, it's still fairly early on in their career that it um, gives you the ability to now like potentially shape your future career with a little bit more structure um, where you kind of really use all your learning from your job experience, 
and your grad school to then say, okay, I am good at X and Y. I love A and B. Here are opportunities that bring these things together. I want to do what I love and what I'm good at. Um, and, 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 and then I want to take that forward. I mean, in my mind, like those are the two things that one should really think about when they make the decisions for shaping their career. Um, and so networks is like valuable to the extent that like it increases your exposure and for some people it's nourishing. Um, in, but it really only is instrumentally valuable if you're going to be in a business where you need a lot of networks or you're in a job that needs a lot of networks. But typically a lot of us after grad school will apply to jobs. Um, and when you're applying to jobs, uh, you go through the usual process of interviews, you know, CVs, cover letters, interviews. When that happens, like most of the organizations that we would care to join for have a very legitimate process in going through your CV, your cover letter and your interviews and making decisions on whether you're the right fit for the organization and also enabling you to make the decision on whether that organization is the right fit for you. Now, networks don't play a role there. And that, so given that a lot of the outcomes after grad school is through this process of job applications, I, I just don't understand why there's such a premium on networks. Whereas where networks do play a role is that, okay, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to like meet a lot of venture capitalists or a lot of like impact investors, perhaps networks will be, be valuable. But even there, like the quality of your idea, the persuasiveness of your pitch um, are going to like trump um, uh, networks. Like networks will, uh, in all of these places, like networks enable you to get first conversations. And I think it's valuable to have them because you get those first aims um, and one shouldn't like discount them, but, but like one shouldn't overemphasize their value as well, uh, is, is what I would say. Anyway, that's a little bit of a random aside on networks because you asked about it. But I think like the way to think about grad school for a lot of people is that like evaluate what skills you want to learn, what exposure you would like to have and whether it's the right time for you to get a recharge, like a battery recharge. If, if all three things seem to be aligning, then uh, you should think, you should, you should consider that. Just to add on, I, I, so I did the similar thing. I mean, I wanted to go into the development sector, so I thought it would be a great experience to learn. I always wanted to go to US. I wanted to go to a leading university. Because the whole Miller, you meet, you learn, and you know, try to understand what's the latest thing coming from development sector. So my question more on the global focus when you started your net, uh, entrepreneurship experience, that was more on that. Now, when you did give your guidance to people, how about people who want to make a shift in between the careers? Let's say they have worked in finance sector or they, they have worked in, uh, you know, different other sectors in technology. And now because of the passion to give back to the society, which is what drove you to the uh, sustainable development sector, they want to come and uh, into the sector, how, how they should be looking? They should be looking at very qu quantitative scales. They should be or more well-rounded. Uh, let's look at qualitative and you know other aspects which you feel. Do you think are we ready to absorb people with different skill sets within the development sector? That let, let me frame it, reframe it in that particular aspect. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I go back and forth. It's a very good question. I go back and forth on this. I'm not sure, you know, like if I'm ever settled on this. Um, well, I'm talking about the reframe question. Are we ready to absorb people into the sector? I think more or less the evidence shows that we are. 
right? Like a lot of people make the switch from uh, a commercial um, enterprise to working on social enterprises or to work with governments. Um, and so I think the evidence shows that that is the case and the converse is less true. So it is not that often that people make the switch from working in social enterprises to a commercial enterprise um, and uh, or like a nonprofit or an international multilateral and then like go from the UN to let's say, you know, Nike. Like that doesn't happen, but uh, we do see the other, the switch from the other side a little bit more is, is at least my anecdotal understanding, but not that I've seen any numbers on this. Now, so whether we're ready or not, like it is happening. Then the question is, I think like how to think about the, like how, if you are someone who's making that switch, how should you think about it? I think there are a few different categories of people who make those switches and it's important to distinguish between that. I think it is not a great reason to make the switch if you believe you're making it purely out of the goodness of your heart, right? And I think this kind of do-gooder rationale uh, of making the switch will really, really wane very quickly. So if that is kind of the mo big motivator and that is the only motivator, that might not actually be enough for you to sustain a career shift. And what enables anyone to sustain a career shift is to be able to like deeply love what you do, right? Like, or at least have like a very clear, like, you know, like a, a sense of enjoyment, fun, where like at least more than half of the work is something you like, if not all of it. So I would say that, um, um, like in addition to this kind of, like I would like to give back to society kind of rationale, one should also have this notion that like, oh, and I love to do this. And whatever that this is, can it be applied to this sector? If so, then I should like make that move. So I've seen people who come from a communications background, move to the development sector to be able to work on communications. Um, and there's an, a strong need for that skill set. I've seen people who come from a data science background, switching sectors, like people see people who come from like journalists, um, making that switch managers, making that switch. Um, uh, people from sales making that switch, people from software making that switch. So everyone is making that switch. And whenever I've seen a successful switch, it is when the combination of I love doing this, A, I am good at doing this, B, and the sector needs this, C, comes together. So you one has to identify like that A, B, and C very clearly uh, when they think about making that switch. Your desire uh, uh, alone should not be the, the, the decision maker. It should be a combination of what you love doing, what you're good at doing, and whether you've seen very clear ask from the sector for that skill set. So therefore, it isn't the case that, oh, you have to have a quantitative skill set or a well-rounded skill set. Instead, it really should be around, um, like, you know, what is it that you have to offer? And then kind of trying to understand by speaking to different people, whether that thing that you want to offer is actually appreciated or valued um, uh, amongst organizations in the sector. And again, it's useful to not like think of like, no one, for example, asks the question, what skills do I need to be in the private sector? That's kind of a, like a, it wouldn't make sense because it depends on what you want to do. If you want to be in consulting, if you want to be in management, if you want to be in R&D, like they are dramatically different skill sets. They're all in the private sector. 
So like, I think the question what skills one needs in the social sector is not the right one. It is like, there are organizations, there are various kinds of jobs there. So you, it's, it, it needs to be a little bit more granular uh, than uh, something, uh, than like at that level of macro kind of questioning. So that's very eloquently put, you know, you, you should be very passionate about what you're doing and where you can apply those skill sets. Now, uh, we come to the last question. I know it's been a fantastic, uh, you know, very detailed chat. Now, this is always the last question from the middle road is, oh, please do share your aha moment with everybody, you know, whatever moment which brings uh, smile to your lips. It could be from your work experience, from your personal experience, anything which you like to share with the audience. Yeah. Um you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, when you mentioned that you were going to ask this at the end, I was I was thinking, oh, okay, what, what, what am I going to say? So um, thanks for giving me a heads up that you were going to ask it. So I was able to think a little bit about it. So I want to just share a story from my like work uh, at ID Insight that really ha has stayed with me. So um, we have um, this team called the Data on Demand team. And the data on demand team's principal objective is to provide high quality primary data or survey data with a reasonable uh, at a reasonable price point um, and with the uh, with much higher speeds um, than that is traditionally available in the uh, survey uh, ecosystem. And so, kind of quality, speed, affordability uh, are kind of all three things that we're trying to simultaneously solve for as part of this team data on demand team. One of the ways that we do uh, quality management as part of this team is that we do audio audits of the surveys that we do. So what that means is that when a surveyor is an out in rural remote Bihar, say, um, and they're speaking to an individual, random parts of that survey is recorded um, uh, by, the, uh, by the software that we're using. And, um, and, and, and of course, this is done through full consent of both the person who is being surveyed and the person who is surveying. Um, and we do this so that we can listen in on the conversation and provide feedback to the surveyor saying that, okay, you're asking this question well, you're, this question you rush through, you need to be slower, et cetera. That, that's why we use it. It's, it's really just a data quality mechanism. But why do I bring all of this up? I bring it up here because it got used in a very different way once and, and that really stayed with me. So we were describing the results of our um, survey on um, the lack of access to uh, uh, take home ration um, in rural communities in a particular state in India that, that I won't name. Um, and what we were basically saying is that, you know, the administrative data shows that amongst mothers who are entitled to this uh, food ration of rice and of wheat and pulses, um, of rice and pulses, um, about 90 or 95% of all the mothers are accessing it. Whereas our survey data was showing that it's more like 65 to 75%, much lower. Um, and so when we were presenting this to the secretary who is in charge of this program, she was, you know, she was pushing back very strongly. It was, you know, there was a, she was just like not believing the data and she was essentially saying you know you have a sample you know we have a lot more data you only have a smaller sample maybe your surveyor asked in a very biased way 
you can ask in any way um, and, and that will really um, uh, lead the person at the other end to answer the way you want them to answer. So we don't know maybe your person is biased. So then we were able to actually like say, you know what, ma'am, why don't we just listen to some of these audits, survey uh, these audio audits. And uh, in one of these audits, you had the surveyor speaking to a woman in um, a mother in uh, a village in the state. And this mother was essentially saying that the local Anganwadi worker is a good person. However, she is never able to give me any of my food. Um, and then the surveyor probed a fair bit saying, are you sure about that? I'm sure at least you get it sometimes and all of that. And this enabled the, the secretary to realize that if anything, the surveyor was actually probing to just ensure that he was not going to record that the food is not being served and is instead probing clearly to just ensure that what she was saying is right. And then when the surveyor probed, this mother really just poured her heart out. This woman poured her heart out saying that here are all the issues I'm facing and you know, like we would love for us to get this small Russian, um, and it it's not everything. We it only go. It's only useful for a few days, but it's something that I'm entitled to. But I'm never being able to get it. I won't blame my local Anganwadi worker because it's not her fault. She doesn't get it, and so it's a like we don't know who, where the problem is. But all I know is that this is something I'm supposed to get, and I would want to get it. It's very important for me, and I'm not getting it. And I and you know you could see perceptibly that the mood in that room changed. Here is one of the most powerful like people in this state. She's probably amongst the top 20 bureaucrats of the state. And here is probably one of the least empowered people in that state. This woman in rural, remote India, one of the poorest parts of the country, um, you know, pouring her heart out to the surveyor who's probing on, is she sure whether the, um, uh, the food has met? And we were able to connect that person who this most disempowered person to this um, extremely empowered, powerful person and just like make the voice of that disempowered person really reach that powerful person. And that perceptively changed her viewpoint on the data. It was just hearing that one story um, really perceptively changed her visceral understanding of it then led to a much more richer discussion about how things can improve, what needs to be done, what she wants us to do in terms of further data collection, and so on and so forth. Um, so I share this story to just, you know, like, give an instance where I think it's a useful reminder for all of us who are in the data and evidence space that, you know, numbers are at some level, uh, they just don't speak. Uh, uh, target heartstrings and they just don't speak a story as well as an actual individual story does. And we were not expecting this kind of reaction, but we were just trying to just show the audio audit to say that the surveyor is not doing such a bad job, but instead the audio audit revealed um, a much higher purpose, which was just connecting these two women from the left and the right of the power spectrum of the state, um, which, you know, and, 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 and that has really stayed with me. And as, you know, since then become an, a reminder for how we should be saying these stories more often uh, than we than we normally do. Just curious, you know, you share this example. What did did the audio then ultimately change her mind? What happened? What was the what was the end result of after playing the audio? 
ിംഗ് at least there was a perceptible change in the meeting and then there was a, a, a range of follow ups that she did after that now whether that changed forever and ever i am doubtful i'm sure that to some extent you know once biases are difficult to kick out and so unless you repeatedly have these interactions it's probably not easy to change someone's mind forever but i'm hoping that it 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 had some kind of immediate impact then that had some uh, good follow ups and probably left a mark in that person but whether or not it it really did or not i mean i, I don't know uh, i can say that at least it left a mark in me and my colleagues in the power of bringing stories to bear while we also bring the data uh, uh while we also highlight the data so at least for us it was an eye opening eye opening moment hopefully it was uh, for for her too secretary now stories are of course very powerful it's one of the best mediums to a lot of times bring across your point so uh, thanks a lot you know you shared a uh, you shared a lot of time you took out time to speak i always wanted to do something in the sustainable development sector a very in depth podcast so uh, thanks a lot you know being there and just to also add on you would be also be a, a guest speaker at the uh, coming up have a webinar on 29th uh, so you'd be also you know speaking there about innovation what's been happening in the sustainable sector so thank you i really appreciate uh, for giving me time to speak about your work and your life thank you thank you so much nishant for this opportunity it was great being on the middle road with you thank you